Hello, and welcome to episode 85 of the Medical Device Success podcast and videocast. I am Ted Newell, your host, and I'm also the host of the MedTech Leaders community. Some of you that are old enough will remember when doctors, clinics, and hospitals were complaining about implementing electronic medical records, which we now call EMR. EMR then advanced and became electronic health records, or EHR. EHR is actually much more powerful than EMR. EHR is the term most of us use today. Then, if your product created a report or an image or some sort of data, your company was busy creating links to the electronic records so that this data, reports, and or images could be stored electronically. Now we take much of this for granted. Our guest today says that even though EHRs were not intentionally designed to aid clinical informatics, without EHR, we would have no AI in healthcare. Today, we dive into the mind of a clinician and researcher who is very involved in clinical informatics and artificial intelligence. Our guest today is Ron Lee, MD. Ron is a clinical assistant professor at the Department of Medical and Hospital Medicine at Stanford University, and he is the Medical Informatics Director for Digital Health and Artificial Intelligence Clinical Integration at Stanford HealthCare. Today's episode is called Bringing AI into Healthcare Delivery, and this is our sixth episode related to AI in MedTech. We have at least one more. If you have listened to most of these, you will have a good idea as to what is going on in the minds of clinicians, researchers, and companies, and providers. And this knowledge can help guide you in your career and or your company's strategies related to informatics, deep learning, and its products. Do your products need an AI component to add more value, or do they need to fit into a workflow that is being enhanced by AI? Big questions. Thanks for listening in today. If you like this podcast, please refer it to a friend simply by using the share link on your podcast player. And if you want to learn more about the MedTech Leaders community, go to medtechleaders.net. Now let's meet up with Ron to learn more about how he works with his colleagues to make AI operational at Stanford. Ron, welcome to the Medical Device Success Podcast and Videocast. It's really great to have you here to talk about AI, informatics, and it's the delivery in healthcare. Great to be here, Ted. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm, I'm really pleased that you took the time. And I've got a lot of notes. We've got a lot to go over. So just tell the audience um, a little bit about who you are, what your role is at Stanford, what you do. Sure. So I wear a couple of different hats at Stanford. Um, first and foremost, I'm a physician. I'm an internist. So I take care of patients who are hospitalized uh, at Stanford Hospital as a general medicine hospitalist. And as a medical informatics director for digital health and AI clinical integration, 
Um, I basically work with our health system. I report to our chief medical information officer or CMIO, as well as our faculty and staff um, to really help think about how do we use AI in a clinical setting? Uh, and that a lot of it is really just strategy work, thinking about operations, actually developing and implementing prototypes and tools with AI. Um, and I would say, you know, a big part of it is making sure that the voices of our clinicians, the people who are taking care of patients on the front lines, that voice is elevated as we're talking about this and making decisions, um, given our, our mission is to take care of patients as a health system. And as part of that, I also lead, so I, I founded and lead a group called the Stanford Emerging Applications Lab, or SEAL for short. And that's also a group that's within our health system, within our digital healthcare team. And I describe it as kind of like the research and development arm of digital health at Stanford Healthcare, which is our health system. Um, so we have a small team of engineers, product managers, clinical informaticists, and our goal is to um, basically be an on-ramp for new ideas and have those ideas turn into actual products and prototypes that we can test out and prove out in our healthcare delivery environment. Um, and then have that inform how we think about digital health as an enterprise, or maybe have something that we develop even actually spin out or scale by itself as something we use for patient care. And finally, I'm a faculty member at the Stanford School of Medicine um, in the Department of Medicine, where I serve as an educator uh, and, and in many ways a researcher. So I, I train medical students and, and residents, both in patient care, but also uh, clinical informatics fellows um, in just this field of clinical informatics. And I'm really just thinking about how do we um, how do we train the next generation of leaders in both healthcare delivery and informatics? Okay, that's great. Thank you for that description. And before we get going, one thing I've been asking a lot of my guests to do lately is to tell us a story about how, let's say in your case, clinical informatics or AI has affected you and or a patient or a case or something. Just tell us a story to give us some flavor as to what you do and what you're trying to accomplish before we dive into more details about your career and, and some of these other subject items. Sure. And I'm glad you mentioned clinical informatics as well, in addition to AI, because I do think they're very related. And mm -hmm. many of the things that we're thinking about in regards to artificial intelligence, I think is really built on the, the foundational work that really people have been working on for the last 20 years in clinical informatics and other health IT. Um, and maybe before I dive into a story, it'd be helpful. I always like to think in terms of first principles, right? Like it's, it'd be helpful to really maybe help define what actually, like what makes a tool a clinical informatics tool or health IT tool? How's it different from just tech, if you will? Okay. Because um, I think there is something special about um, using tools that are data rich. And, and that's why I think as we're using tools with AI, there's a lot of alignment because that's really the, the key part of what an AI tool is. It uses a ton of data. So many of the principles of implementation and how it affects patients and providers are very similar. Um, so yeah, I would say that, you know, in terms of what makes a tool an informatics tool, uh, and really part of what I'm interested in is anything that really uses a ton of clinical or healthcare data that makes it, that makes the tool possible to use. So whether it's a tool that collects a ton of data or is a tool that analyzes data, communicates data, 
derives insights from the data that ultimately drives some kind of care process. So, I mean, the the most probably widely recognized tool in, in, in informatics is the electronic health record. So when you ask, like, how does informatics affect our daily lives? I mean, it affects my life every day and probably the lives of most other physicians and clinicians in the country. It's We have this gigantic tool called the electronic health record that initially was, you know, built for purely pretty specific use cases. I mean, sometimes in many cases, it was really built for billing, but maybe documentation. But then really, I think it, it has evolved into this, um, some may call a platform that has clinical decision support, you know, reporting, all sorts of applications that help with care that are really made possible by all the data that is entered into the electronic health record. And then the engine that powers the analytics that allows us to really derive meaning from that data, and as well as the application layer. So, for example, you know, like many electronic health records actually have built in uh, a secure chat function. So people can actually chat with each other, kind of like, you know, as you would do with Microsoft Teams or Slack. But you would do this within the EHR. Um, but it's done in such a way that's, of course, you know, protected in terms of patient privacy, but it's it's designed in such a way that's centered around the patient workflow that really is possible because it's within this EHR software. So that's just an example of how, you know, it starts with this data-rich um, application or tool, and then it's like many other applications and capabilities emerge. So that's, I guess that that's one point I like to start with, but going into... Um, how AI comes into play. So many, so, so there are, you know, early use cases of what we call uh, AI, artificial intelligence, that really I think um, is based on, uh, I mean, the, the other way to describe it would be advanced analytics in the sense that we have mm -hmm. models um, that can, or statistical models that can predict uh, things that happen in the future, or it could be could be pretty good at classifying things into one category or another. That's basically what machine learning does. And we've been, and I've taken part in, in designing and implementing some of these tools for um, our health system. You know, we started to think about how we use these tools um, for patient care. So I can tell you an example of actually just how I've used one as a, as a user, as a clinician. Sure. Um, and then also, of course, from the perspective of one who's taken part in designing this tool. So, for example, um, you know, we have this tool that, that uses a model that predicts a patient's likelihood of needing intensive care unit level or ICU level care, um, or their risk of experiencing what we call a rapid response event or a code, which is basically a term that describes something really bad happening to a patient in the hospital. Sure. They get really sick, whether they, you know, they're, they, they aspirate, you know, they choke on something, their blood pressure drops, something that really requires a ton of additional support in an emergent fashion. Um, so these are events that we typically try to avoid or at the very least prepare for. And I think the problem is that we, we can be a lot better at, or at identifying the, the risk, the patients who are at risk earlier so that if something does happen, um, we're prepared. Like there's kind of a shared understanding between the physician and the nurses and everyone else who is part of the care team as to what the actual risk is and what are we worried about and what should we do if something happens? Because if, we, if that does not occur, the alignment is not there, there's a lot of chaos, people talk past each other and you know, often it leads to bad outcomes. Uh, and of course, the second um, opportunity is if we could identify those patients earlier, we could do something about it and maybe prevent that event from happening. So this is a pretty widely you know, understood problem um, in healthcare that many health systems are trying to solve. 
So we um, designed an intervention that uses a prediction model that predicts the likelihood of someone experiencing such an event. And you know, I can go through the details later in terms of how we designed it, but basically the, the intervention itself was the model, it, it identifies patients, and we built this team-based workflow where not just the physician, but the nurses are also alerted. And then we have this structured conversation, a checklist that the team has to go through at the time when the patient is, uh, is identified. And then the, the goal of this checklist is to have the nurse and physician talk to each other and actually mm-hmm. arrive at a shared mental model so we know what to do. So I experienced one uh, recently and um, it's just, you know, it's really interesting because I think it's, it just really speaks to one, I, why I, I'm really proud of this tool and why I think it's really interesting, but two, just the, the breadth of opportunity uh, in terms of improving patient care with AI that might expand beyond what people immediately might think AI would do. So in this case, you know, we had a patient who on the floor, I was taking care of him and um, uh, without going into too much detail, of course, I mean, he, he, he basically had a respiratory issue and um, you know, he, he was having some trouble breathing and we needed to put a machine called uh, BiPAP on him. So basically this is a machine that just helps someone breathe when they have trouble breathing on their own, but it's a step below actually needing ICU level care. This patient was sick. Um, so not surprisingly, this patient was identified, you know, by this model as someone who's high risk. Now, I wouldn't say I was surprised. It wasn't like the model told me something I didn't know already. I mean, I knew this patient was sick, right? And, and often, you know, when you talk to, to clinicians, doctors, especially who partake in such interventions, they'll say, well, you know, the AI is not that smart. Like I already know the person's sick. So what's the point, right? But, you know, the, the key part of this intervention was that it's not about the model telling me something I don't know. It's about the model driving this team-based workflow and essentially, you know, requiring that I actually go through the structured checklist with the nurse who's also taking care of the patient, which is something that I have to admit, I probably wouldn't have necessarily proactively done unless okay. unless something really bad happens, right? But this was kind of like a preemptive huddle. The patient was fine. Like he was actually okay on the machine, but we preemptively huddled with, uh, with the nurse and we went through this checklist, which basically goes through like why do we think the patient's sick and what what could what could happen, what were the concerns. But what was elevated through that huddle was the nurse actually brought this up and she was like, you know, this patient is sick, but he's actually located all the way at the end of the hall. Um, he's like the furthest room down from the nurses station where all the nurses huddle together. So I can't actually see him through the door. Whereas you know, for for for, for patients in the hospital, it's actually really important for nurses to be able to kind of have a direct line of sight into the room, especially since there aren't enough nurses to, you know, for each nurse to be in every single room, right? So she was like, it would act, I'm feeling a little uncomfortable. If you're saying that this patient is, is kind of sick and might need to go to the ICU, um, I would really want to be able to like look at it at all times, but I can't, I don't have time to be in the room at all times. So actually as a result of that, so I obviously did not think that at all. Like I'm not a nurse, I'm not in her shoes. So I just didn't, I wouldn't have thought of that even though I knew this patient was sick. So as a result, we actually, you know, I, we worked together with the unit and we moved a patient to a more centrally located um, uh, area of the state nursing station where multiple nurses could actually look at him. He actually ended up going to the ICU. Um, oh, wow. And, yeah, the following day. But again, it wasn't a surprise. But at that point, we were all prepared. The nurses were there. They were watching him. It was kind of a planned escalation, which is exactly, I think, the desired outcome compared to no one saw this guy, right? Maybe some, no one really looked at him for five hours. He got a lot worse and then a code was called. And usually, you know, that, that's a, that's a worse outcome. So yeah, the lesson here is the, the, it's just interesting because the AI system didn't tell me specifically something I didn't know, but it kind of created this collaborative 
workflow that would not have happened before that elevated other members of the team in a way that I think really benefited the patient. That is a great story. <clears throat> That's perfect. And it, it incorporates a lot of things we're going to talk about today because that's one thing I hear as I've talked to different people. That's one thing I hear over and over again is, is workflow being an important consideration in, in terms of the use of um, AI and collaboration and, you know, medical informatics. Okay. That's, that's awesome. So why don't you tell us, you know, when you were going through your medical education, what sparked your interest in informatics and AI? Well, I had no idea what informatics even was uh, when I started medical school. And I don't think I really thought about AI at all um, until way later, probably during residency. But I will say that something that has always been a theme, um, even before I went to medical school, was just really thinking about, you know, how, I mean, given that we, as a society, we do certain things in a certain way uh, and, and medicine, you know, is a part of that society, right? We practice in a certain way. And there are always these opportunities to change how we do certain, uh, do things. And there are different leverage points that we can use, either policy or, you know, culture or whatever. Um, but I've always been interested in, in, you know, the use of technology to do that, because I do feel like, you know, in certain ways, uh, technology is kind of a cheat code. You know, if you were to, it's, it takes a long time to change policy. It takes a long time to change culture. And ultimately those things need to happen. But um, technology, you know, interacts with you in a very intimate way. Um, if you just think about how the iPhone changed, cult, I mean, changed the world, right? It, it just with one piece of technology, it didn't require, uh, you know, long, just this long period of time when you really had to advocate for a legislation change or something, but it really just changed how we do a lot of things. So I've always been fascinated by that. Um, not necessarily, you know, AI or even healthcare, but that's just that interaction was really, was always really interesting to me. Um, so with that in mind, you know, when I went to medical school, I've always just been on the lookout for, okay, well, this is really cool. I love medicine. There's a ton of stuff that could be better about medicine. I'm just a student. I don't really know, but you know, there's just something I've always had that, you know, intuition that there was something out there that I'm sure could provide the right leverage point to, to do something to help us be better. Um, I, you know, I, I also just was, I was always very interested in data. Um, just the idea of the fact that we, I mean, this was already when the electronic health record was, was more of a thing. Like I used an EHR as a medical student. So you can like kind of very clearly see that we're generating a ton of data that's stored. It's not really being used for anything um, aside from just like re reporting. Um, there's a clear opportunity. And uh, that actually first led me to be interested in epidemiology. Um, and then I, you know, did some training in epidemiology. You know, this is where I really learned a lot about risk models um, which is kind of the you know, foundation of, of, of epidemiology. And, and that was interesting, although, uh, you know, as I was doing that, I definitely saw a promise in using data to predict things or to stratify risk and just really deriving meaning from data, from a lot of data that's collected uh, through patient care. But there is still that gap between using the insights derived from some of many of these epidemiological studies and natural patient care, you know, the, the, you often have to wait for papers to be published, maybe like a clinical trial. And, you know, it, it takes like years before any type of insight actually affects anything. Whereas, you know, when you go back into the wards or the clinic, like things happen in real time. So I've always just been wondering, well, given we have this analytics capability, there has to be something that allows us to use that capability in a more direct manner uh, in a way that's much more relevant to me if I, as, a, as a practicing physician. 
Um, so when I went to residency at Stanford, that's where I, I really kind of became exposed to this field of clinical informatics that I didn't even know existed before. Um, and initially, it was through my work um, actually in quality improvement. So uh, I was involved in several quality improvement projects as a resident to improve just different processes in patient care, like team-based communication, sepsis, or detection of sepsis. Um, and, and, and then the realization, and this is not my realization per se, but just many people have already thought about this was, well, data and technology are actually quite important key drivers of any improvement. So often, you know, if we wanted to do some, do some kind of improvement project, we wanted to improve how we coordinate patient discharge or improve how we take care of patients with sepsis, often the, the conversation always, it just always goes back to, well, how do we get it into the HR or how, how does the, or the EHR can't you know, it, it always goes back to that as a barrier. No one really knew how to get past that. Um, and that's where, you know, I thought, okay, this is where, this is really interesting because one, it speaks back to, okay, clear, this is an example how the technology is actually a leverage point here, but it sounds like people don't really understand yet how to use that technology in a way that, so you can exert that leverage. Um, and, uh, and, and, and then, you know, it turns out that there's actually a field called clinical informatics where people have thought about this or are trying to think about this. Um, and that's how I got started. So um, I ended up doing additional training um, uh, in clinical informatics uh, through a fellowship. And then, you know, during that fellowship, I, I was able to do a lot more and kind of get more formal training and understanding of, of the knowledge that's needed and, you know, was able to lead some projects. That's also when I started becoming a bit more involved in machine learning, AI. Um, and Stanford, of course, is just a leader in that field. And there are so many opportunities to interact with people, just really smart people in that area. Uh, and that's kind of what led me to where I am now. Okay. So tell us a little bit more about what clinical informatics means for the average person. That's a great question. Um, and, you know, as a field, I have to say uh, that question comes up every year during these <laughs> annual clinical informatics meetings, right? Because it, it could mean so many different things to different people, depending on who you talk to. Uh, and especially since, you know, this was a field that I think was born not out of you know, hey, we need to invent a field. It was born out of, like, there was a there was a need, and people had to just do different things to adapt to that need. And this this field kind of emerged. So this field emerged when it became very obvious that um, information technology. So going back to what information technology is like, you know, technologies that require a ton of data in terms of documenting, you know, documenting processing, communicating data, analyzing data. That has become a that became a much larger part of care delivery with the electronic health record and all sorts of other things. And, you know, that, that was not necessarily an intentional process. It, I don't like, you know, for those familiar with the history of EHRs, it was kind of a, I mean, many stars kind of aligned together for it to just, it was somewhat opportunistic the way that EHRs were launched, you know, the high tech act and the, you know, the st stimulus package back in the uh, late 2000s. Like it was all, it was very opportunistic, opportunistic that all of a sudden we all have EHRs, but it wasn't like, you know, physicians, clinicians intentionally designed it and really intentionally thought about how we implement it. It was much more reactive. It was more like, hey, here's this, here's how your whole practice is going to change, like deal with it <laughs> or, or, right. you know, <laughs> you know, figure it out. And then, um, you know, and then, so I think, you know, the result is that just, we became very reactive in terms of how technology was used. And um, the, the response rightfully so was, well, wait a minute. I mean, we should actually be in the driver's seat. We should be proactive in understanding how to design these things and implement these things. So that's, that's really why the field of clinical informatics 
became, uh, got started. And in terms of what actually goes into that field, I like, so this is actually something that really resonated with me. It was one of my uh, earlier mentors in clinical informatics who, who really kind of presented this framework to me that I use all the time because I think it makes so much sense. Um, and, and he presented it as a, as a stack. So for, I guess, for those of you in, in software, you always think about software stacks, right? And mm-hmm. like engineers yep. are like full stack engineers because they kind of understand all the different layers necessary to build software. Well, I would say that this analogy could also be applied to implementing health IT information technology um, because there are also stacks involved. So for example, uh, let's just go back to the EHR. I mean, for you to really be able to implement and use the EHR in a very in a responsible and innovative way, um, of course, you have to understand how how the infrastructure works, how technical infrastructure works. Like, do you want to do it in the cloud? Do you want to do it uh, on prem? All that stuff, right? You have to understand how the data is represented. Like, do you want to use some kind of data model that's interoperable? Do you, is it okay that you use a proprietary data model? Should you use Fire or OMOP? Uh, you want to think about how that data can then be analyzed. So what, what's the analytics layer that actually makes the data useful? Um, do you want to build a set of rules-based engines? Do you want to build some machine learning models, right? Um, and then the application layer. So once you know how to analyze the data, how do you actually represent the data in a way that is useful for the user? That's that's the application. So are you talking about a documentation tool? Are you talking about a clinical citizen support tool, a mobile app, you know, something, whatever you need to build that the person actually needs to touch or use and be able to touch. And above that, there's the workflow layer. So how do you understand what workflow to design to make this even useful? What are the unintended consequences of the application that uh, could affect workflow that ultimately affects patient outcomes? Of course, there's a clinical domain knowledge, you know, like what's what's the actual clinical content that needs to go into these workflows and, um, and these applications? Above that, business and organizational strategy. You have to understand how this affects the strategy of your healthcare organization. Uh, is it going to affect your bottom line? You know, how does it, right? And then on the, on the very top is external rules and regulations. Like, how do you understand the regulatory landscape of medical devices and health IT? Um, how does this, how, how does the 21st Century Cures Act uh, affect your roadmap for what types of technologies to implement? So I would, that's what I would call the stack that a clinical informatician must be uh, familiar with. So as a clinical informatician, I wouldn't say I'm the ex, I'm the definitive expert in any of these things. Like, I mean, there are people who are experts in, in data infrastructure, right? And we have great architects who do that. Of course, there are people and experts in analytics and machine learning, uh, people who are experts in, um, in business strategy. But I think, you know, someone needs to really be able to integrate through these stacks up and down and ultimately be accountable for making sure that whatever technology we develop and use for our clinicians actually works and, and actually drives our organization and patient care forward. So I think it's ironic that this all started with the EHR, which was really a method for controlling costs and, and, and so on early on, you know, a way the government was trying to get people to, um, you know, supply information for reimbursement and so on and so forth. They rewarded, they penalized, um, you know, hospitals, doctors, and so on for using it correctly or incorrectly or not enough. And, but that did give you the, the basics of a, of a computerized infrastructure upon which you could build something, but then the clinicians had to take over and, and sort of say, Hey, there's something here that could be a valuable tool. If we use it correctly, we just have to add a lot to it. Absolutely. Am I getting that correct? I absolutely, and I think you pointed out something that's important. And 
I will say, you know, maybe among physicians, uh, I might have a somewhat contrarian view of the EHR in the sense that, you know, I'm definitely so definitely opportunities to improve the EHR. And by no means was the process of the process for EHR adoption perfect. Um, but to your point, I, I will say like that's look, without the EHR, we would have no AI in healthcare. Like I'm pretty confident in making that in that conclusion. You know, we would not have you know, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation at all if, if yeah. we didn't, if, if the government didn't, you know, really kind of scale the adoption of EHRs. Now, who knows? Like we, have, we don't have counterfactuals. We don't know what would have happened if we just kind of let EHRs organically be adopted. I mean, that's the counter argument, maybe. But I mean, the reality is that EHR adoption prior to the High Tech Act was like in the single digits in terms of percentages. And it was all very just small scale, like maybe one clinic would use it for like orthopedic surgery and like another clinic would use it for billing. And it wasn't actually just for billing. I think that's somewhat of a myth. I mean, there definitely is that benefit, but I mean, I think the reality is like doctors realized that paper notes were just horrible and it just didn't, it didn't make sense, even though everything was digitized. So I think there was like a real kind of motivation to improve patient care by digitizing data. And I do think even back then, I mean, many of the Institute of Medicine reports pointed out way back that there was this opportunity to leverage all this data that we are generating in an analog way, if we digitize it, there's so, I mean, there would be a ton of opportunities that would open up in terms of analytics and, you know, innovation and all that. So I think they thought about that before. They just kind of used a very top-down method through government incentives to, you know, facilitate adoption. And, you know, that probably resulted in, in certain EHR companies to get a ton of market share just because they could, rather than, you know, through a kind of a market-driven process. At the same time, it, you know, adoption went from single digits to, I forgot the exact number, but, you know, 70, 80%, right? And then from there, then you have, that basically then established the foundation for, to your point, the actual infrastructure that later on allowed us to even build things on top of it and analytics and machine learning. At the very least, you had digital data to do to work with. Um, so anyway, I, I don't know. I'm not saying it was the perfect process, but I, I will say that I, I don't think, I, I do think it was a key enabler. I think EHR adoption and implementation was a key enabler of all the stuff that we're talking about now in terms of digital health and machine learning, AI, and, and other innovative capabilities. Do you have to work with these companies like the EHR company to um, to tweak the, the the software, the fields, whatever it might be to get the information that you want in there. So are you constantly interacting with them? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, you know, I do, but I mean, many people um, um, in our health system do that's kind of, I mean, it's many with the people's jobs are to do that, to interact with the EHR companies I mean, the company we work with, uh, you know, they have as many, they have big, these big user group meetings and there's kind of a constant feedback. Um, yeah. And, and what they do is they really work with us to redesign different interfaces and it could get down to a very granular level in the sense that like, Hey, for this note template, do you want the note template to have this word or the other word? Right. And, and many yeah. of these things can be customized just locally by individual physicians, but yes, that's actually what happens all the time. And I think it's, you know, it's good that we have that feedback. Uh, and part of my job actually is to figure out how do we layer on some additional, you know, more advanced capabilities uh, on top of this EHR platform or have something that's separate, but still integrate with the EHR platform in a way that creates an experience for the physician, the clinician to take care of their patients. Okay. And then can you give us a couple examples like um, um, of prototypes of tools or tools that you've, like you gave us an example during the story which mm-hmm. is a great example. And I think you called that when you and I talked before, 
you call that a deteriorating patient uh, situation. And that actually can encompass a lot of different conditions. Um, I guess that could include sepsis, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, which, which I think is good because you do have some people that are focusing entirely on sepsis, but really you don't know where a patient's going to go necessarily when you're first observing them and you're collecting data. So I, I like this, this term deteriorating, but can you give a, a, another example or two of tools that you've created either that you have put into regular practice or, and, or you're trying to work on trying to develop into something that would be regular practice? Sure. I can give you two examples that were, you know, I would say smaller scale prototype stage projects. Um, sure. But ultimately, I think strategically would be important for us, um, uh, actually through our SEAL uh, lab, the Stanford Emerging Applications Lab. So that's kind of our vehicle um, to, as I mentioned earlier, kind of be an on-ramp for these emerging applications that we can develop internally. And many of them, they're, they're not necessarily applications using AI, but uh, some of them do. Uh, and, and again, and I'll, I can speak to this later. And like, I think if AI is not the thing, like AI is not the product, AI is a capability. So when we build products, it could have some AI in there, it could have some other things It might need, you know, maybe there's like a visualization feature that becomes really important. Um, so just kind of, that's how I think about, you know, some of these products. But uh, one example that we're developing now um, is actually, uh, so we're, we're collaborating with a researcher uh, and a dermatologist um, at our institution who, I think she was really clever. She developed this machine learning model that um, is able to take a photo of a skin lesion. And so, so that just to provide some context, uh, you know, for many of your listeners, probably it sounds familiar. Often you have like a mole or something on your skin or whatever, something that you want to show your primary care doctor or your dermatologist and you take a photo of it and then you send it maybe through your EH electronic health record portal or email it to them. Um, and they have to look at it and make a determination as to, okay, this looks bad or this looks good. And, you know, we might, to, uh, we have to come to clinic or not. Um, what often happens, so, so this is actually a really, so there are two levels of this project. The, the most kind of low hanging fruit and, but I think also probably has the highest chance of success is simply that we, we've realized that many times when someone takes a photo, it's actually kind of blurry or it's like of the wrong angle or it's imagine when, you know, when you're uploading a check with your phone. Um, I mean, the phone actually tells you, hey, this is too blurry or it's too far, right? Before it can really process it. We don't have that capability in healthcare for anyone uploading any image. So what often happens is you take a photo, it might not be of high quality, it goes to the physician, the physician actually has to look at it and take time out of his or her schedule to then get back to you and be like, oh, never mind, it's actually not, you know, it's the lighting is not good, I can't see it, and then just goes back and forth, right, and that actually results in delay and just wasting time. Um, But also, you can imagine that lends itself pretty well to some automation, considering that has already been done, you know, in other industries. So... So we're working with, with some researchers who actually developed a model that does that. I mean, it just takes a photo of an image uh, specifically for skin lesions and actually tells you, I mean, it, it predicts whether or not um, this photo is, is you know, too blurry or, or is enough quality for actual clinical interpretation. So they actually came to us because they, were, they developed this model. They were trying to figure out how do we use it now? I mean, at this point, it's just a mathematical equation, right? Um, but yeah. it's not an app. So this is, the, so they've done, they've kind of done the analytics layer but it's not a product. So how do we turn it into a product, even if it's a prototype that we can use? So that's what we do at SEAL. So we work with them and we're actually building out an application, a user-facing application 
I mean, just imagine the experience you have uploading your phone, uploading a check on your phone. Like we're basically building that. So if you upload a photo using your phone, I mean, there's already a portal that we have as part of our health system to, um, uh, to, to upload photos. We're kind of building this application layer on top of it, like an add-on that then uses uh, this machine learning model to process the photo. If it's too blurry, it gives you a message in real time. It tells you, hey, it's too blurry. You got to upload it again. And then you do it again until it's not blurry. And then you send it to your physician. So we're in the process. It's not live yet. We're, we're building it out. Um, but we are planning on testing it in a limited fashion, you know, with our, some of our patients in, um, in the dermatology clinic. So I think I'm pretty excited about that. The next layer is, you know, we, we've thought about, and, you know, we have some models built too that actually will look at the lesion and, and determine, you know, how, how dangerous it is. So that's more mm-hmm. of a clinical decision, right? And which obviously is more difficult and higher risk. So I think it'll probably be some time before that actually, you know, affects patient care, but we have models and capabilities to look at a photo of a lesion and then with reasonable accuracy, um, classified as uh, a non-malignant lesion or a malignant lesion, or even more specifically, is it a melanoma, is it a squamous cell, basal cell, right? Or is it just a, is it just a mole? Um, so we have models that do that. And, and similarly, we're thinking about, you know, how can we build an application and a workflow that could test out that capability, but also drive a workflow that's not, you know, that's not automated. Cause I don't think we're ready to have that automate some kind of diagnostic pathway, but maybe there's something there that helps triage and still gets, you know, make sure the expert and the human is in the loop. So that's a little further down the line. Um, so that's one example. Um, this, another example we're also exploring with, um, with uh, SEAL is, um, uh, this is this might sound a lot more boring, but I would say this probably speaks to the more low-hanging, like the more realistic opportunity for AI in healthcare, which is how do we use uh, machine learning to improve and lubricate many of the back office processes in healthcare? And the reason why I and, and many people in healthcare believe that is a is a really uh, robust opportunity is that it's already been shown to work really well in other industries. So like the financial sector, for example, is I think very famous for using that really well, uh, but many other you know, non-healthcare industries. And the reality is that, I mean, everyone says healthcare is different. And it is, of course, like when you're talking about the patient facing part of healthcare, it is very different. But healthcare is also, a, I mean, they're also just organizations that have a ton of administrative tasks, just like any other organization that frankly are not that different. So, so, you know, we could probably just use many of the lessons that other industries have learned and then just apply it here. And I think we're starting to do that, um, but we're developing. So in, both with vendors, so we have some kind of co-development opportunities with vendors who actually are working with us to think about, um, for example, how do we use AI capabilities to help streamline our referral process? So Stanford's a, it's a referral center. Uh, we have a ton of people who get referred to us um, who need our care, but the process of actually, you know, just if you think about if you go to a primary care physician in the community and they say, hey, you have this condition, um, maybe it's a mole. Hey, you have this mole and uh, it looks a little dangerous. Like maybe you should see a specialist at Stanford. They submit the referral. So from that point all the way to you actually seeing the, the dermatologist at Stanford or getting the care you need, there's a ton of complexity and inefficiencies that just frankly are it's a shame that they're still there, right? And many of these are process issues, um, but many of these are problems I think that technology can solve. So we're we're working on you know technologies that can help, for example, um, direct certain referrals to certain clinics in a more intelligent way, um, scan information from referrals and surface certain types of information that's higher yield to the physician 
versus like stacks of paper that are faxed over right now, which is basically how you know many health systems are dealing with referrals. Um, yeah, other kind of back office, back office processes that ultimately for us are important in just making sure that the patients who need care from Stanford specialists can actually get it. And, and all this stuff that, you know, the hard part should be treating the patient. The hard part should not be making sure the right form comes or making sure the right information got to the right place. That's the problem we're trying to solve for. And also the delay, the mm-hmm. delay in seeing the patient, it could be, a, you could add a month to the time between the, the primary care physician and seeing a specialist. You could add a lot of time. To right. that. And if yep. we go back, if we go back to the mole example, um, or the skin lesion, whatever it might be, that's also where you could apply um, deep learning or AI in terms of all the different images that are, you know combined in your data that indicate that something is a, of a certain level of danger. Mm-hmm. And you, you, from all that data, you can say pretty clearly because you have thousands of photographs over time, let's say, mm-hmm. um, you could clearly say that this is a, a serious situation. This patient needs, their care needs to be elevated. They need to get in and see somebody quickly uh, to take care of this particular uh, skin problem. Yeah, absolutely. I think that would be the opportunity. Um, and you know, we are actually actively exploring. So we have some of these capabilities in terms of having models that could do that. So we've yeah. shown that already uh, and that's nothing new per se, but it is that operationalization of how do we actually safely and effectively use these models in applications and workflows, that's the challenge. Um, and there are so many things to consider there, right? You might have a model that, uh, you know, in the quote unquote in vitro. So like if you're testing it in this controlled environment could be really accurate. But, you know, if you ask most people who are familiar with machine learning, that performance could deteriorate quickly if you were to use this model in the real world, because the photos that you trained your model on might look somewhat different from the photos that your actual patients will take that will that'll send to you. And you need to be, need to be very careful about um, knowing how your model actually performs in a real life population. Is there bias? Does it exclude certain people? You know, what are the unintended consequences? Again, many, many similar concepts really um, with any other health IT implementation, right? These are the, these are the same things that we had to think about when we implemented the EHR and, and, you know, we, it took us time to really learn from our mistakes. And I think my goal actually as a medical informatics director is to really apply, really translate some of those lessons, because many of which I think are translatable with the additional, you know, expertise in machine learning AI to more intentionally design and implement tools that now have this additional capability. I'm going to keep going back to this small example, because as we're talking about things, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about how you relate this back to the med tech industry mm-hmm. and what should the med tech industry be doing to properly contribute to this effort in terms of um, gathering information, uh, collaborating with people like yourself, with AI, with mm-hmm. experts. And, and, you know, I can imagine there's a lot of these companies that make special cameras and filters and so on for dermatologists to use when they're taking the pictures. Why haven't they thought of this? Why haven't they thought we need to come up with a way of helping to transmit this data to um, a, a colleague in a clear, concise way and or from the patient, you know, mm-hmm. just don't get out of the doctor's office and go to where the patient is who has a great smartphone. Like I do, I've got this iPhone 13, mm-hmm. but a lot of them have great cameras. Right. Mm-hmm. And, get that picture, 
get it in, make and help help be part of that facilitation instead of just sitting in the doctor's office with your with your cameras and your tools and your other mm-hmm. diagnostic diagnostics. We, I, I think that's where you know part of this series on artificial intelligence and deep learning and and clinical informatics. I'm trying to encourage companies to think outside the box and mm-hmm. to work with people like yourself and um, um, not get caught blind and you know, in three years, they're out of business because everybody's using their smartphone. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, look, I, I think it's really, really interesting what's happening in the med tech industry. Um, just because, I mean, I think the barrier to innovating, especially in the digital health space and informatics space, is just so much lower than, you know, for some of the, I guess, the hardware and other other types of technology. It's just because you can just iterate much more quickly and um, just there, that's kind of the, you know, the nice thing about software, right. And why software can, can grow so quickly. Um, so I'm, I'm actually really excited. And I think that, I mean, I think that med tech is, is quite far and in many ways. So I, I you know, actually going back to maybe the original question of like, maybe what advice or what message I would have for med tech is that number one, I would say, recognize all the things that you're much better at than a health system. I mean, there are just so many things that as a small agile company, a software company, you're going to be able to do things that health systems would never be able to do, even if we tried. Uh, so for example, you know, we we created SEAL. We definitely are not trying to be a software company within a health system because we'd be so bad at doing that. <laughs> um, but what we do want to be is, uh, well, one, you know, if we want to create just really low, you know, low-lived, simple software, that's just kind of like such a low-hanging fruit available to it. I mean, you know, it's not worth a company to build if it's just like a specific pain point that really applies to our clinicians. Like, you know, we can do that. It's not hard. It's not hard. But what we would also like to be is an on-ramp for software companies that, are really, so going back to that health IT stack, you know, they may have excellence in the applications layer, the data analytics layer, right? I mean, like, yeah, speaking like the iPhone, uh, iPhone, for example, I mean, the iPhone is a fantastic piece of hardware. Uh, there's actually AI in a lot of the cameras, as you probably know, that really allow it to focus, right? Like that's, 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 I think, really where AI could be really interesting, it, you know, is in that the AI is not, Apple is not selling AI as a product, but Apple is using AI as a capability to build its products. And I think that's the same, that's the mentality and the, and the thinking that we need to have in healthcare as well. And I think the product in healthcare has the additional complexity of, you know, if, especially if you really want to like have this be used in, in a health system or patient or have patients use it, is that, you know, rather than an iPhone where you just kind of let it loose in the wild and people are just going to use it in healthcare, you know, the workflows, the use cases are much more it's just more complex, right? I mean, the risk is higher and there are more experts involved. So there's just a lot more that needs to be um, uh, thought of in that workflow layer. Uh, and of course, just the clinical kind of domain, clinical content expertise layer in a way that just regular consumer consumer facing um, software, you don't really have to do as much. So that's where I think health systems become really important is, you know, if, if companies partner with people like us, you know, we can one actually just, I think, really help them understand what the problems are and how does aligns with the strategy of organization because often that's really what makes or breaks your sales cycle you know if you can have the coolest tech but if you don't understand how this improves the some kind of kpi or the bottom line for a health system assuming you're help, you're selling to a health system or even a payer or whatever i mean you know you're not gonna do very well but if you um really understand how you fit right in or what you know what what is the leverage point that your product can activate for a customer. I mean, those are the companies that become really successful. So that's where 
you know, these partnerships, like that's what people like us have to offer. And we have, our, we have an interest in doing that because we want things that can sell for our pain points. We're not going to develop ourselves. Like we need to find them. Um, so, you know, that, that's one thing we're trying to develop. And then um, I think secondly, it's just, um, the, you know, what you're seeing, uh, I think, which is actually really interesting is software companies that are kind of saying, you know what, why it's, it's really annoying to have to wait two years for a health system to adapt to our, like, you know, for, for us to convince a health system to use our product and their workflows and processes may be so outdated anyway. It's almost like, you know, the tail wagging the dog, right? Like we, our tech is supposed to imp- or transform the process. They won't do it because they're a gigantic health system. So now we have to kind of like downgrade our product to fit their process. I mean, that doesn't really make sense, right? So I'm actually really excited about um, many of these software companies that are actually creating services by themselves. So you're seeing, you know, for example, these apps, these companies that started out as apps, but then they actually built like a tier team around the app. Um, so maybe maybe this is an app that helps with COPD. Instead of having to sell to providers, they just they built a clinical, a small agile clinical organization around the app, and they just. And, and their, their thesis is, well, we can just do a better job at, you know, at creating these new healthcare processes. And we'll, we'll sell directly to the payers because we're saying that we, we actually can deliver better care at a lower cost, which is a value proposition for a payer or to employers. Um, or, you know, companies where you have the tech paired with some kind of virtual care offering, like a telehealth company. I mean, you're seeing a lot of that, or even just the larger organizations um, you know, think about like CVS Health and Walmart or Amazon Care, right? Like they're basically kind of reinventing the the value chain for patients using a more tech forward approach that's somewhat decoupled from traditional health systems. I think, and this is speaking from someone who's working for health system, I actually think that's really interesting, and um, I think you'll see a lot of uh, growth there. Um, like, like I interviewed um, the uh, founder of a, a Verge Health Tech the other day, and. He has a little hockey puck thing that's um, called Lung Pass. Mm-hmm. It's built off of AI, but it just but it's built off of the AI that has listened to thousands mm-hmm. and thousands of of lung sounds, so that they can very accurately understand what they're listening to, and then they can plug it into a healthcare system. Mm-hmm. You know, so th- I think that's a good example of where tech can help a healthcare system. And then the other is uh, I'll be uh, interviewing. Later on, um, uh, David Golan from Viz AI, and they they've you know gone after strokes, and they just got clearance, I think, for aneurysms. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have, but there's a whole chain of events that they're involved in, which you talk, which is this workflow that you're talking about, mm-hmm. um, to make sure it all works. And they have a lot of people and customer success, but still, it's software and there's some hardware involved, and they have to make it all work together and make it work with the with the um, with the healthcare system, like like a Stanford, mm-hmm. so I, I think there's so much opportunity um, for people that get outside of their traditional um, engineering mindset of what technology is, and think beyond that into the software, mm-hmm. into the um, deep learning things that could influence where their product goes. Because the information from the product has to be plugged back into the the system, the healthcare system, so that you understand what to do with it. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think you you touched on a, on a really important point in my mind, which is this, this importance of being able to translate between disciplines. I think that's actually a very underrated skill that um, just often makes or breaks the success of companies and products, especially in med tech and healthcare, just because 
I mean, you really need to bridge different worlds. Uh, you need to bridge the worlds of the, like, you know, for Viz AI, like they need to really be able to talk to neurologists and stroke doctors who really don't know that much or probably don't care that much about technology. Like, you know, they're, they're just, they want to be able to take care of the patients. They don't care how it gets done. Uh, yeah. And of course, with your engineers who may not, I mean, they may have never have seen a patient in their lives or may never have even experienced anyone with a stroke, but they really, they're really, they care about the technology, right? Like what really excites them is the, that backend machine learning model, but all of that has to matter. I mean, there isn't really one voice that will dominate the conversation. It's the kind of synthesis of all these voices and perspectives into something, excuse me, a product or a solution that helps. I think having that type of voice, just that type of ability, whether it's a role in your company or at least a mentality to be able to kind of stay humble and listen to each other and really deeply understand what it is that you're trying to do, what it is that the brother person needs and how do you work together and how do you bring together different skill sets, piece it together in a way that has never really happened before to me, that's, you know, that's hugely important. I think the deeply understand is are the key words there. It's, it, you really do have to listen. Um, what, what, what advice well, we're sort of on this at the end of the, the notes I've got, we're talking about, you know, how can leaders be better prepared to lead their companies in this environment? And we're somewhat talking about this right now. Any other thoughts you would have for uh, med tech leaders as they, as they go forward and try to participate in this new world where people like yourself are trying really hard to make our healthcare smarter, get better outcomes, reduce readmissions, um, reduce costs with fewer people, you mm-hmm. know, what, what, any other words of wisdom that you'd have for med tech <laughs> leaders? Oh boy. Um, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm obviously still trying to figure all this out myself. Right. So I, I can't presume to have words of wisdom necessarily. Um, you know, I, I would just actually just go back to my original comment of, uh, of just under being able to kind of understand who you are, understand who the other person is when you're having conversations with people across different disciplines, because I, I think what I often see, um, when things don't turn out well, for whatever reason, Mm-hmm. is just that people talk past each other. It may be that, you know, a company has a really great piece of technology and then the person they're talking to may actually have a, a specific need that there might be some fit, but somehow it didn't match. And it wasn't because the technology did not match the problem or vice versa. It was just something about, you know, how that conversation was framed or maybe the, the priors that people brought to that conversation, the language they used even. And I, you know, I, I'm sure these like that, that those scenarios probably happen all the time across the industry. And, and think about how many missed opportunities there are um, because of that. So, uh, and again, this is speaking for someone, I'm not necessarily the expert in any of these things, but I do kind of, you know, I, I do partake in many of these conversations. I do, you know, think a lot about how to be integrated and synthesize different skill sets into something that works. And I also find that to be the hardest thing, but once, but if, when it does happen, it's actually quite beautiful. So, you know, I, I don't know if that counts as, as, as a words of wisdom or anything, um, yeah. but, but, you know, I, I do think that just having that mindset, having that translation mindset and that capability can actually make or break many of these opportunities. Okay. Anything that you recommend people study, read, courses they take? Um, what, what would you suggest that people do just to be more aware of the whole area of informatics, um, deep learning, artificial intelligence, what it means to medicine? Sure. Well, I mean, there, there are, you know, there are 
tons of resources out there, both courses, Coursera, course, I mean, it just depends on what you want to learn, right? If you want to learn kind of the basics of machine learning, there are great Coursera courses out there, you know, there are books, but I would actually, um, you know, <laughs> the book I was thinking about when you asked that question actually has nothing to do with healthcare, nothing to do with informatics, nothing to do with AI, but I would say it was one of the, just really has foundationally affected me in terms of how I think about all three things. Um, and that book is called, um, it's called a fifth discipline by Peter Senge. That's S E N G E. Okay. It's a, so it's kind of a classic. I think it was written back in the nineties. Um, and it, it really what the book is about is about systems thinking. Like how do you formalize systems thinking? Uh, and in that case, I don't think he necessarily talked about healthcare or talked about many other industries or businesses and organizations. Um, but it really profoundly, I mean, it's written in such a way that really profoundly affects how you see the world, how you see complexity and the reason why I think that's so important and how that has affected me in my role is if you want to think about how to improve healthcare, especially with technology, that is a highly complex problem in a highly complex environment. And I often see, uh, I think, people who don't necessarily appreciate that level of complexity fall short in fulfilling some opportunity. And, and there's a formal definition of what complexity means. And that's what I love about this book. It really breaks it down very concretely. Like what makes, how do you even think about a complex situation? How do you deal with it in certain ways? And if you want to somehow change that complex environment, AKA healthcare, you know, this is how you find the leverage points. And to me, that really, I mean, to translate it back to med tech and informatics, like that's where I think, you know, you could really be very creative in, in analyzing your current environment. Look, look at where the complexities are, look at where the leverage points are, and then user knowledge of informatics, of machine learning and digital health, um, and then match it, right? Like connect that capability to the right leverage points. And when that happens, um, that, you know, becomes really interesting. But I think it's that appreci appreciation of complexity that often is lacking. And that's what I think this book allows you to, to really um, understand. That's awesome. Perfect. And um, my viewers are used to the fact that I have show notes or I have links to all this stuff in the show notes and uh, they'll be able to find a link to that book. Mm -hmm. Well, another thing actually I want to add the other, I just yeah. thought of this. It's, um, you know, this is a book, um, again, not necessarily about healthcare or machine learning, but again, it has really affected my thinking is um, the title is called a history of cloud computing. I forgot the author, but um, I think I'll that find the, it. yeah, the history of cloud computing and the reason why I thought that book was interesting. So what the book does is it takes you through um, just at the very beginning, how the, the, the uh, foundation of cloud computing technology even came about and then how that evolved into what we know, like what we see cloud computing as it is now, which is really like the backbone of, of how software is developed, employed and how businesses are run. And I think it's really, it's really impactful because I see that actually as somewhat of a, um, a lesson for how AI could actually have a similar effect in healthcare. In the sense that cloud computing was a capability, it was a core capability, just like AI. Um, and rather than in these early companies that were really good at using the cloud, companies like Amazon and Netflix and all that, um, you know, they didn't necessarily say, hey, how do we deploy the cloud into XYZ? They were thinking, how do we use the cloud to really enhance our product offerings, to change our business models? To really make it so like Netflix would not have been Netflix if there wasn't a cloud, right? I mean, they would have still been selling DVDs, but because there was a cloud, they could really host a ton of stuff online and really transform their business model. And because, I mean, now most businesses have to use the cloud in some way. I think of AI as something similar. Um, I think, you know, the way we think about AI now is like, how do we 
know, deploy AI in this particular use case. That's kind of you know, maybe AI version, uh, version one. But I think version two, version three is really where we think about how do we see AI as a core capability in a business model or a product that really just transforms how we do things and how we do business in the same way that cloud has done the same. Um, so that that book just really takes you through that history and it just gives you almost a, I don't know, you can probably translate it into some kind of roadmap for how AI could do the same. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for, for those suggestions. And Thank you so much for your time today. This has been a great conversation, very interesting. And, um, you know, I really appreciate the time you spent with us. Of course, likewise. The more I learn about the work of clinicians and researchers like Ron Lee, the more hope I have for our healthcare system. It is broken, no question about that, but we may be able to fix part of the system with technologies and workflows that are being developed. How do you fit in from a career or product standpoint? Do your products need an AI component to add more value, or do they need to fit into a workflow that is being enhanced by AI? You need to look at your products a different way to answer this question. And as Ron said, you need to be a good listener. Just be sure that you're not on the outside looking in. Thanks for spending time with Ron and me today. Now go win your week.